quick disclaimer, there's an instance of spousal abuse this week that gets kind of dark, even if it's not that detailed. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up the story of Peter Monk. You'll see that if you're going to have medieval open heart surgery, you should really make sure that the devil is doing it. The creature this week is a dog from Japan who can be a great traveling companion for you if you're cool with your travel buddies literally tearing you to pieces if you stumble. This is Myths and Legends, episode 240B, Heart of Stone. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might, you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, we met Peter Monk, the son of a humble, late charcoaler in early modern Germany. Peter hungered for more from life, so he went into the Black Forest to make some wishes with the Little Glass Man, a magical creature who offered up three wishes and then some. On his way, Peter learned of Dutch Michael, the actual devil who lives in the forest, and after a brief escape from the devil, Peter made his wishes. They were pretty bad, so the Little Glass Man gave him some do-overs, and his first four wishes consisted of him getting epic dancing skills, as much money as one of the tavern goers, Big Ezekiel, a glass factory, and a horse and carriage. After annoying everyone with his dancing skills, financially ruining Big Ezekiel, and thus himself, running the glass factory into the ground, and running off his carriage because he couldn't afford to pay the driver, Peter threatened the life of the little glass man. Not a great idea. The little glass man burned Peter's hands and left him to sort out his own problems. Peter looked to the ground. He was going to lose everything. The bailiff, the one who assisted the sheriff in settling debts, making arrests, etc., looked it over. Yeah, a husk of a factory with literally every window broken? It wouldn't go for much. He walked up to Peter and sighed. This was the part of the job he didn't like, but Peter didn't leave him much of a choice. He had skipped out on paying hundreds of workers. Peter's family home and his father's old charcoal business wouldn't even begin to cover it. With that, Peter's world began to spin. Through his profoundly bad management, he had risked not only what he had been given, but what he had. The home, the business. They were the only things left of his father. They would be gone soon, too. Almost as bad, his pocket was now his pocket, and his dance moves were his own, and they both were pretty embarrassing. Turned out threatening the life of a creature that gave you nice things does not bode well for your continued possession of said nice things. Peter wasn't executed for being a wizard, which was, yeah, kind of a real possibility. I'd like to think that burning people because they're witches or wizards was on the wane, but I'm thinking it was more likely because the accusation was coming from a drunk man who just lost a bunch of money to the accused. That was one bright spot in all this. Though not being burned alive is probably the lowest of low bars to clear. Still, Peter laid awake at night, staring up at the thatch. As he did the morning, his father had died. They took possession of the mansion he had built to settle his many debts. 
so he was stuck back at home for the scant few days that they still had a home. Soon, he would be on the street, and it wouldn't be like it was before, when he was the son of a beloved charcoal maker. Half the village thought he should still be burned as a wizard, and the other belonged among the people he had failed to pay. There was one way out, though, and in the days leading up to their eviction, as he walked the village, he began to see the man, Dutch Michael, or just Michael, the devil himself. If you were looking for him, he was everywhere, at the back of every crowd, in the shadows of the tavern, even in the pews of the church. He was there, and he was waiting. Finally, Peter felt like his heart might beat out of his chest. His mother had just finished packing up her things. They were going to move far away, where no one knew their names, where no one knew what Peter had done. Peter rose and grabbed his coat. He told his mother he was going to see about a prospect, one that could save them both. His mother grabbed his arm this time. She asked if this was a good idea. Whatever had happened out in the forest before, it led to a lot. But it was all gone now. What about working hard and following in his father's footsteps? They never had these sorts of ups and downs with the charcoal business. Peter wrenched his arm away, now more determined than ever to set things right. You know, I told you, Michael said, when Peter arrived at the spot in the Black Forest. I told you he was a little cheat. If you give someone a gift, you should just give it to them. Not attach all these little morals and lessons. Peter thought about it. Right? I mean, what is his whole deal? I know, I know, Michael said, patting Peter on the back. He should come to Michael's home. They would see if they could come to terms. Soon, Peter was sitting across the table from Michael, who asked him, what did he think his problem was here? Um, yeah, it, Peter knew his problem. It was lack of money. Michael laughed. That was a symptom. What was his true problem? Peter was silent. He actually had no idea. Your heart, Michael said, reaching across the table and tapping the young man on the chest. His heart? Michael asked, what led him from his life as a coal burner? Discontentment? Envy? Sadness? Not wanting to be his father? What kept him from fulfilling his duties at the glass factory? The pleasures of the tavern? The issue here wasn't with the externals. It was with Peter's heart. Michael would solve all of his problems, and he would only take in return the young man's heart. Peter laughed, but he saw that Michael was serious. He would die? Not the way I take it, my boy, Michael said, his beard shifting with a grin. His posture was draped over the back of the chair, reclining lazily, like this conversation couldn't matter less to him, but his eyes were fixed on Peter, like a lion watching a gazelle. Michael sat back with a shrug. Besides, he didn't see what choice the man had. If he didn't come up with the money soon, his mom would be out on the street. How well did he think an elderly woman would fare in the gutter? How would Peter's father be remembered when his son had led the family into ruin mere years after his death? How would Peter feel, knowing that he had failed at the one task he had as a son in this time period? Peter looked to the ground. Michael snapped his fingers and pointed, that, that right there, he could take that feeling away. Not only would Peter be able to save his family, but he would never have to feel anything he didn't want to 
ever again. Peter looked up. He unbuttoned his shirt and bared his chest. Do it. Michael said that he appreciated the enthusiasm, but please button your shirt back up. This was his dinner table. He didn't do open heart surgery here. Come on. Once Peter finished buttoning, he followed Michael, a.k.a. the devil, through a small metal door that was as heavy and as thick as a bank vault. Before Peter saw them, he heard them, dozens of jars rocking in their containers on dozens of shelves. Peter looked up, and in the murky water of the jars, what looked like red orbs pulsed. Peter read the names carved below the jars. The foresters, the tax collectors, lenders, men who pressed others into military service without their consent. The Dancing King, Big Ezekiel, all these people, the people you envy before you knew about any of this, all these people live without worry or fear, Michael grinned, his yellowed teeth flashing in the firelight. You've never lived one day without worry, without fear. Now, it can all go away. With this, he held out a small, smooth rock, a marble heart, one that won't beat one extra beat from anxiety, fear, pity, or any other type of grief. Peter said he actually wanted money, and Michael offered him a stone. Uh, okay, a stone in 100,000 gold. How about that? Michael asked. That was an absurd amount of money, but managed well, and he would be able to manage it well without all that pesky emotion. He would be a millionaire soon. Peter held out his hand, and the pair shook on it. Michael waited. Oh, yeah, now he can actually unbutton his shirt. This is the table where he actually did the open heart surgery. When Peter boarded the carriage, a nicer one than the little glass man had given him, he held the pocket of his coat upside down for a few minutes while the money poured out of it. He didn't feel relief. He didn't feel elation. He didn't feel anything. And it was amazing. After years of anxiety and fear, the lack of feeling was like when someone switches off a fan running right next to your head. The silence that he didn't even know he missed was blissful. With the money and a coach to take him anywhere, he thought about his mother. And you know what? It was about time for her to learn to fend for herself. This was his money, not hers. She hadn't gone to let the devil carve out her heart. In fact, everything that Peter had done with the little glass man had been for her and his duty to her. You know, if she wanted salvation, she could earn it for herself, like he had. Peter tapped his cane on the window up by the driver, the driver that had materialized with the carriage. Peter didn't quite care what his deal was or where he came from, though. Remember, he didn't care about anything. He ordered the carriage driver to go anywhere. No. Wait. Everywhere. The guy said he understood the grand gesture and all, very poetic, but he did actually need a destination if they were going to go anywhere. Peter thought about it. Hmm. How about Paris? We'll see Peter begin his worldwide journey with zero consequences or downsides after making a deal with the devil, but that will be right after this.
Paris, London, Rome, Vienna, Amsterdam, over the next two years, Peter did go everywhere. And it was all so boring. He had all the money he could ever need. He had freedom from fear and anxiety. But freedom from those things also meant freedom from their opposites. Happiness, hope, joy, excitement. There were still pleasures, sure, like food, drink, other stuff. But those were fleeting. The happiness was gone as soon as they were finished. He paid for his last wine-soaked hotel, boarded his carriage, and returned home. But not home. He directed the driver to the mansion that they had left two years prior, the forest home of Michael. When they arrived at the heart of the Black Forest, his carriage creaked as Peter stepped down to meet the smiling form of Michael sitting on his porch, whittling a new walking stick for himself. Peter asked if he could have his heart back. He didn't care for the lack of anxiety anymore. Turns out he didn't care about anything, actually. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Michael said with a smile. Well, here's the deal. They had a deal. Peter wouldn't be getting his heart back until after he was dead. Then he could enjoy it all he wanted. It wasn't Michael's fault that Peter was a thoroughly boring person who found that life hung heavy on his hands. Peter should settle down in the Black Forest, marry, find some hobbies or a job he could do to pass the time, and well, soon enough he would be dead. The old Peter would have wept and begged or pounded his feet and thrown accusations in Michael's face like a child. The Peter with the heart of stone, though, could only see the devil's logic. They did have an agreement. It was completely in the devil's power to change the terms of the deal, and he chose not to. There was nothing Peter could do now but follow what the devil said, find something to do with his time, and wait for death. As they rode by the outskirts of town, Peter absentmindedly gave the driver directions and then closed his eyes to rest. Sleep was one of his few pleasures, if you could call them that. When the carriage lurched to a stop, Peter opened his eyes and stepped out. Why were they in front of a half-collapsed shack? It was then that Peter realized he had given the driver directions home. To his family home. The one he had, long ago, shared with his mother and father and happiness. A feeling that felt odd to him now. He looked the home over and felt nothing. He told the driver he had made a mistake. He didn't mean to come here. He wanted to be taken to the tavern. It was his first time at the tavern in two years, and big Ezekiel rose when he saw Peter open the door. Flanked by Long Solomon and the Dancing King, Ezekiel wore a sneer. Until he looked Peter over, he uttered a soft sigh, and a look of almost pity washed over him before a grin broke out. He was glad Peter was back. Sorry about all that wizard business. He was just mad he lost all that money. They had been saving Peter's spot for him. Peter took a seat at the table, and here at least, it was like he had never left. This time around, Peter's money wasn't in charcoal or glassworks. His money was in money. He gambled, though this time more shrewdly, and he lent out money at 10% interest, which isn't credit card rates high, but it's pretty high. And that was his minimum. He and the bailiff, 
the one that had collected Peter's own debt back in the day, became close friends at first. The day after someone missed a payment, he would have the bailiff and his men go and possess their house. He had to find a new bailiff every few months, though. None ever had the constitution to follow their job to the letter of the law. As a lender, it was Peter's right to take possession the day after they were in breach of contract. Some bailiffs pleaded with him in front of the family, persuaded by the children's tears. They quit after the first few times they had to throw a family out to the dark forest in the rain. Others outright refused. They were fired by the sheriff, who was also a client of Peter's. When the struggling members of his village, who remembered his generosity before he had disappeared, found that he was back, they flocked to his mansion. Peter had anticipated this, though and they met not the open wallet of Peter, but the open jaws of his bloodhounds. Yeah, he pulled a Mr. Burns and released the hounds on them. He sipped his brandy, listening to this, quote, cat's music from his veranda, while the people below screamed and the hungry dogs snapped. He did do the people one kindness. His mother, who got on by begging in the streets now, would show up at his door every Sunday evening, asking anything of her millionaire son, who abandoned her right when she needed him most. To get her to go away and not spoil his evening on his way out to the tavern, he would pass her sixpence through the door. He would feel her rough, withered hands clasp his own, but he would yank them back in disgust. He didn't care about her or what she thought about him, only that he was now sixpence poorer. Peter was older now, 26. It was well past time for him to marry. To do so, to find the right bride, he went to the tavern, got the general consensus on who was the most desirable woman in the Black Forest, went to her father's house, and made the man an offer he couldn't refuse. Elizabeth's father agreed to the marriage without so much as asking her, and within the week, she was Mrs. Peter Monk. Turned out, living with an unfeeling monster, not as fun as it sounds. Elizabeth learned this one morning when she handed a penny to a beggar who appeared at the door. Peter looked at her and told her that she was wasting money when she did things like that, and the next time she did so, he would beat her. Peter stood at the door, hidden from view from the outside, watching over Elizabeth as the next beggar approached. Elizabeth tried to close the door, but Peter's cane stopped it. He shook his head. Do it. Elizabeth took a deep breath, and yelled at the man, saying that she would have him beaten if he returned here. The man staggered back. Elizabeth's shoulders slumped, and she tried to close the door again, but Peter shook his head. She wasn't finished yet. Beggar after beggar who came to the door, Elizabeth had to shout curses at them. When she was done, after hours of this, word had spread about her. She was worse than her horrible husband. At least he didn't even answer the door. She stood there, inviting people up to be berated. These two belonged together. It went on for months like this. But then, one day, Elizabeth Monk decided to be different. She decided she was her own person, that she would help people. That was the day that she died. We'll conclude our story and do some psychoanalysis on Peter Monk, but that will, once again, be right after this. 
a month of crying, of wishing she was back in her father's hut than in this cold man's mansion, and an old man walked along the road out front, carrying a heavy sack, his body rocking with each cough. Elizabeth watched him, wary of Peter's threat, but she couldn't just let the man suffer when she and Peter had more money than they could ever need. The man on the road collapsed under the weight of his bag and just laid there, face down in the dirt. Elizabeth ran out to help. Not ten minutes later, the man was sitting in their house, munching on bread and sipping at the wine, thanking Dame Elizabeth for her help and telling her that she would get her reward in this world and the next. She will, they both heard behind them. Elizabeth jumped to her feet, and Peter stood there with his walking stick. She would get her reward, he reiterated with no emotion whatsoever, for letting a tramp come into his house and drink from his goblet. He told her not to do this. There were consequences. He raised his stick. Peter didn't feel anger anymore. He didn't feel anything as he hit her and she dropped to the ground, or when he kept hitting her. He didn't feel anything when the beggar rushed to her side, when she didn't wake up. Peter took a deep breath. Could he count on the beggar for his silence, or would he have to kill him too in order to stay out of prison? The beggar rose and rose. He grew before Peter and changed his form until Peter was looking up into a face he had seen before, the face of a now not-so-little glass man. His eyes were like, quote, soup plates, and his voice boomed, saying that Peter was cursed. Peter didn't feel fear, he couldn't, but he did know the consequences of the little glass man looming over him, like a vengeful spirit of old. The little glass man brought his hardened glass sleeve down hard on Peter Monk's shoulder, and the man collapsed, groaning. Still, Peter wasn't repentant. He looked up at the little glass man with scorn. If he was doomed, it was the little glass man's fault. He started Peter down this road. It was his fault he even considered making the deal with the lord of the forest, Michael. The glass man shook his head, and he scooped up Elizabeth's body. He looked down with a mix of scorn and pity. Peter had eight days. Eight days. For what? To make it right. For her. For Elizabeth. It wasn't hard to cover for his wife's death, Peter learned. He hadn't permitted her any friends or visitors, any of his acquaintances or business associates who came by and asked to give her their regards were merely told that she went on a long trip. It worked for everyone but Elizabeth's father, who asked far too many questions. Still, the man lived in a hut in the middle of nowhere, and Peter was, as one man, the biggest bank in the Black Forest. He would be fine. Every night when he slept, though, he heard her voice, telling him to pray for his heart. He remembered that voice throughout the day, and didn't miss her? He couldn't miss her. He thought about her, though, and wondered why he still heard her. He went to the tavern to try to forget, but found that the ale and wine only amplified his thoughts. In his stupor, one of the only places he had managed to find peace before, 
he saw her face. For the first time since he was a teenager, he stopped drinking. Still, he had one more reason to visit the tavern. It was the reason that brought him there in the first place. Ezekiel. A few days later, he found Big Ezekiel at a bar stool and scraped up next to him, holding his hand up to the bartender, but laying down a coin. Ezekiel, what do you think happens when we die? Peter asked. Big Zeke looked at him side-eyed. If they were going to have a conversation like that, Peter was buying. Peter tilted his head toward Ezekiel, and the barman brought him another ale. Zeke said he didn't know. Heaven, hell, what'd the guy at school say? That they measure your heart and the deeds that you did in life? He didn't think about it much. Tried not to. Peter nodded. And what if a man didn't have a heart? Ezekiel froze and chuckled. Peter too, huh? He knew it. He knew there was something different about the man when he came back. Peter breathed deeply. Yeah. Zeke drained his tankard and waited for another. Made sense. All the strange happenings over the years. Kind of unfair that he got the money and the dancing, though. They all had to choose. I should ask again, Peter said, staring at the wall in front of him. What happens to men like us when we die? Zeke took a deep breath, then shook his head. He guessed they would be judged. But Ezekiel said he truly, deeply did not care. That was part of the deal. Did Peter actually care? Peter shook his head. No, but I think I want to. Ezekiel set down another half-empty tankard. Well, that's your problem. Six days after he killed Elizabeth, Peter found himself among the fir trees at the highest point in the dark forest. He breathed deeply of the forest air. It was Sunday. He needed to speak with someone. Treasure man and forest old, more than a hundred years I'm told. You own the land, if this be true. As Sunday's child, I come to you. Still not the poem, the little glass man said. What do you want? Peter said he had a wish. The little glass man shook his head. He had no desire to grant any wish of Peter's. Peter held up three fingers. Three wishes. That was the original deal. Three wishes. And LGM could refuse the third if he thought it was foolish. The little glass man said that the first two contained dancing and a glass factory Peter ran into the ground. So he wasn't holding out much hope. Peter said he desired his heart back. Can your type even have desires? The little glass man asked. Also, did the little glass man make the exchange? Was he Michael who gives riches and cold hearts away? <sighs> then he pinched the bridge of his nose. He reserved the right to refuse the third wish if it was foolish. That wasn't a foolish wish. He, honestly, he kind of hated Peter, but he would help the young man he would help Peter get his heart back from Michael.
Hey, so, killed my wife, Peter Monk said to the devil. Nice, Michael said, holding up his hand for a high five. It was an accident, though, Peter said. Michael shook his head. Well, okay. He supposed he was accidentally proud of Peter for a moment. Yeah, well, um, well, she was found, so have to head out for a little bit. On the lamb and all that. Think I'm going to go to America. Need some cash, though. The devil grinned. Always happy to help someone, especially if it's for murder. How much did you need? Million? Two? Peter said two million, if the devil had it. Devil nodded. Two mil. Got it. Peter shoved his hands into his pockets. Good to know that Michael was good for the cash, at least. Michael blinked. At least? Peter shrugged. Yeah, he, he knew the heart thing was a fake. He didn't know what the devil was playing at, telling him that he wouldn't feel stuff. I mean, it worked for a while, but killing his beloved Elizabeth? Ooh, he felt that. Michael stopped counting out the cash. Two things. First, how beloved could she have been if Peter killed her? And second, what was Peter saying here? That Michael didn't take his heart? Craftiest being in the world and he just got it, Peter shrugged. I don't like your implications here, Michael said, slamming the money door shut. Peter said that he wasn't implying anything. He was stating that the devil, Michael, tricked him out of his heart. He knew this because he felt the death of his wife. Michael stood, pointed at Peter, and gestured for him to follow. When they stood before the wall of hearts, each beating in their murky jar, Michael pointed to the jar that said Peter. There, there was Peter's heart. Happy? Yes, yes I am, and that's how I know you don't have my heart, Peter said. Michael shook his head and took the jar down. This is a waste of everyone's time. Here, he reached into Peter's chest, ripped out his heart, and Peter died. For like 45 seconds, tops. Peter gasped back to life and saw Michael holding the stone heart. He pointed to Peter's chest, saying that it was back in. See, didn't that feel different? And what, what was Peter doing? Peter was getting down on his knees, knitting his fingers together and bowing his head. What? This is ridiculous. You think you can defeat me with what? The power of prayer? Michael boomed and then hesitated. Wait, seriously? And yeah, seriously. Peter prayed and Michael shrank and shrank and shrank. He shrank until he was a tiny worm, pacing back and forth over the floor, complaining about how ridiculous this all was. But it had like a really cute tiny worm voice. As Peter prayed, the hearts on all the shelves above him began to beat. They beat until the shelves rocked. Peter realized that his heart, his true heart, the one that filled him with all those pesky fears and feelings, was back. And he was terrified. He rushed from the room and never looked back. Not to, you know, get the hearts of his friends or crush the devil with his boot. Peter is still making great choices. The problem with Peter feeling his feelings was that, after the past couple of years, he had plenty to feel bad about. 
releasing the hounds on beggars, letting his own mother go hungry on the streets, remorselessly turning out families into the Black Forest, murdering his wife, all of those chased away the short-lived joy of getting his heart back. He knelt before the little glass man, tears streaming. He hated himself. He deserved death. And he wanted the little glass man to kill him. The little glass man that perked up at that request. Absolutely. That sounded awesome. If he was being honest, he wanted to kill Peter since like minute two of meeting him. Okay. Lay down on the ground there. Close your eyes. You want like an axe? Club? Dealer's choice? Dealer's choice. All right. Close your eyes and wait for a surprise. Peter did that. Tears streaming. As he laid there, he prayed, asking forgiveness for all he had done, saying that he would be better. I believe you, he heard in a familiar voice. It was Elizabeth's. Peter opened his eyes, and she was there, standing over him. He stood. He found tears streaming down her face as well. He asked, what was going on? How is she here? I brought her back to life, the little glass man said. What? It's Germanic folklore. It's not like it's remotely unprecedented. Peter held Elizabeth, begging her forgiveness, and if she would take him back, promising to be better. He, he had been different. He was himself again. Elizabeth stepped back. She... She would need time. She understood about Michael in the Heart of Stone. The little glass man had told them everything. Them? Peter asked, wiping his eyes. Yes, he heard. His mother stepped out from behind a tree. Peter got on his knees before her, begging her forgiveness too, for abandoning her in her time of need. He had been terrible. He hadn't been himself, but those were still choices that he made. His mother picked him up off the ground and took him into her arms. She said that his betrayal had been heinous, but time would heal them. She, too, understood about the heart of stone, and she knew he wasn't himself. Together, the pair wept. And, by the way, none of this is in the original. The little glass man speaks up for the women, saying that they forgive him, and that they'll forget all about his transgressions. But we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Peter said thank you to the little glass man, put his arms around his mother and then his wife, and together they all went home. Peter sat down, looking at the home his family home that had fallen into ruin. He couldn't believe he let this happen. Everything he had done, and everything you can still do, his mother said. Everything we can still do. She helped him to his feet. She could help out. So could Elizabeth. They were all stronger than he gave them credit for. Peter nodded. He, he knew. But his mom shook her head. No, he didn't. He was stronger than he gave himself credit for. He didn't need wishes or magical creatures or the devil. He didn't need strangers to love his dance moves. He was okay the way he was. Like she always said, he was one of the lucky ones. He smiled at his mom and thanked her. 
I mean, how could you not be? You literally got away with murder. Peter ran his hand along his throat and shook his head. That was still a very sore subject. Yeah, I know. And she forgave you. Don't screw it up again, his mother said, and thrust a broom in his hand. After taking time to repair their relationship, Peter and Elizabeth had a child. And when it came time to choose the child's godfather, Peter didn't hesitate for a moment to choose the man who had been like a father to him, guiding him after his own past. The little glass man agreed by turning four pine cones into money rolls, ensuring a bright future for the son of Peter and Elizabeth. Peter never gambled again. All of his devil money turned to ash, but he didn't need it. For work, to provide for the family, Peter did what he was always supposed to do. He became a charcoal burner, like his father. And now, it wasn't so terrible. In fact, he actually liked the simplicity, the quiet of it all, the working with his hands to build something for his community. He could only smile that, after everything, the life he had ended up with was the life he had the whole time. He realized that chasing after money, after people's opinions, only brought him despair. He would rather be a humble charcoal burner with people that loved him than some titan of industry with a heart of stone. This is kind of a tricky story, because while there's a lot to dig into here, there are also a few tropey things that I'm not a fan of. Like, I would hope that, from a storytelling perspective, we're all kind of past the point where female characters and their trauma only exist to help the male characters grow and evolve. I almost didn't pick this story, what with the literal deus ex machina of Peter beating Michael with prayer, but then I realized the story was never about Peter versus the devil. It's only about Peter versus Peter. It's a coming-of-age story, where Peter is his own worst enemy, and he needs to trust the people that are trying to help him, and grow up to literally face his own demons. I found the psychological analysis of Peter fascinating. I guess Carl Jung, the famed psychoanalyst, compared Peter's life to Wilhelm Hoff's, the writers, who also lost his father at a young age. And Peter, in the story, was forced by his own feelings of inferiority to choose between two father surrogates, Michael, who represented rampant commercialism, and the little glass man, who represents the conscience, civil trade, and morality, according to Carl Jung. Jung goes on to say that Michael, and Peter under his tutelage, represent something larger, the unbridled, profit-seeking, and commercialization of the first third of the 19th century. Sure glad that that ended, and the world isn't driven by profit-seeking and commercialization anymore. Jung goes on to say that Peter, throughout most of our story today, remained in a state of self-destruction and stagnation, spending his days wallowing miserably in pleasure. It wasn't until he was shocked from this life that he was able to move on to the next stage, where he begins building a household and preparing to pass on his life to the next generation. Next week, we're telling the story of an African sorceress and a hippo that just won't quit. The creature this time is the Okuri Inu, from Japanese folklore. For the traveler walking along the road at night, 
the Okuri Inu, is your best friend and your worst enemy. But only if your best friends are just waiting for you to take one misstep before pouncing on you and tearing you to pieces. Um, real quickly, this is not me telling you how to live your life, but if your best friends are actually waiting to tear you to pieces, like literally, you should probably reevaluate what sounds like very toxic relationships. But yeah, the Okuri Inu is something of a black dog that will follow you on the road at night. And if you stumble or trip at all, it will, once again, kill you and tear you to pieces. I guess the name translates to sending off dog, because it follows behind you like a friend, sending you off. But once again, if this is the behavior of your friends, find new friends. The reason why it's kind of a good thing, though, is that this creature can get kind of possessive. You are its prey, and if you stumble or fall, it and only it gets to kill you. So if some giant skeleton comes by wanting to eat you, or some weird faceless dude with a butthole eye pops in to try to scare you, by the way, those are both real creatures that we've talked about on this podcast. The dog is having none of that. If you find one is following you, your first step in avoiding it is to not have a misstep. If you make it past the edge of the forest without falling, turn around and thank it for seeing you off safely. It'll... I guess be so disgusted with itself for betting on the wrong person to fall down, it'll never follow you again. Setting out some meat that night, as an offering, also doesn't hurt. If you do fall, you have to act quickly, and then slowly sit down. If you find yourself tripping, you have to make it look intentional. Act like you're, oh, you're just so tired, and you meant to take a seat in the middle of the road at night. I guess the Okuri Inu is as principled as it is unintelligent. That or just, like, pretend like you're Willy Wonka. You know, where he walks out of his factory limping and then falls but rolls. Then just run as fast as you can, because I really don't think the Okuri Inu is going to fall for any of that. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time.